Hello, and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at healthydebate.ca. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto. And today I'm joined by Fahad Razak, who is a staff general internist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto and a Bell Fellow at the Harvard Population and Development Centre. So before we start, we just want to issue a quick apology for the quality of Fahad's sound recording. You'll still be able to hear him, but he is echoing as though he is a voice from the heavens above, but we'll make the best of it. Uh, So hey, Fahad, how's it going? Amal, great to be back with you again. It's been a while. The time has gone by so quickly, it's like a blink of an eye. Uh, (laughs) Is it a bit insulting that I don't feel like it's been that long? A little bit. Why don't we move on? All right. Okay. So today, Fahad and I are going to talk about two studies, as always. Fahad's going to talk about pre-exposure prophylaxis of HIV in African women, the VOICE study. And I'm going to be talking about a randomized control trial of exercise for the rheumatoid hand, the SARA study. So, Fahad, why don't you kick us off? Talk to me about the VOICE study. Sure. Thanks, Amal. So the study that I'm going to talk about today was published by Morazzo and colleagues in the New England Journal. And the major finding was that a tenofovir-based pre-exposure prophylactic regimen for HIV prevention did not show benefit. The other second major finding is that when they objectively looked at adherence in this trial, that would be by biologic measures, less than one-third of women were actually using the drug. Okay, that sounds intriguing. So tell me, Tell me more. What's what's the background to this study? Prior to this trial, there were a number of previous randomized trials that looked at tenofovir or a tenofovir-based regimen, often tenofovir and emtricitabine, and that combination is called Truvada, something that we've seen often on the wards. Uh, so studies have looked at whether that could be an effective pre-exposure prophylactic regimen uh, in people who are at high risk for HIV transmission, and they found it was effective. And this was across a wide variety of groups, including men who have sex with men, heterosexual discordant couples, and injection drug users. However, there was one major trial that did look at this combination, Truvada, that's emtricitabine and tenofovir, and that was called the FEM-PREP trial, also looking at an African population and also found no benefit. So that led to uh, the, the situation where this trial was needed. Why do they think that it's not effective in these African populations? And what was different about this study? Sure. So one of the notable things in the FEM-PREP trial, that was the one major negative trial, was that reported adherence in that trial was quite low. And so one of the things that the authors tried in this trial was to provide a variety of ways that the medication could be taken, both oral or as a vaginal gel, to see if adherence would improve. So they looked at over 12,000 women at 15 sites in South Africa, Uganda, and Zimbabwe, and there were five arms in this trial. There was two oral regimens, one of just tenofovir and the other with tenofovir plus emtricitabine, and then a placebo oral. And then there was two vaginal gels, one which was vaginal tenofovir and placebo gel. And the primary endpoint in this trial was HIV infection. Interesting. So that sounds very complicated. What did they find? As I said, this trial actually had five arms, three active arms and two placebo arms, and two of those arms were actually stopped early because of futility. That was the oral and vaginal tenofovir. And then they continued on the oral uh, tenofovir and emtricitabine arm up till the reporting of this trial, and it was also found to be not effective. So that's the major takeaway from this trial. However, there was this additional striking finding. So they already had concern ahead of time about adherence, and when they asked women 
both through an interviewer or through a computerized interview, did you take your medication? About 90% of women reported that they were taking the medication. They then went further and they asked women to return the unused medication. And again, uh, doing pill counts, it suggested that about 90% of women were taking medication as prescribed. Finally, they actually had a biomarker so they could test plasma levels of tenofovir. And when they looked at that, it suggested that less than one-third of women were actually taking medication. So this uh, suggests a massive discordance between what was being reported by women, what would be suggested by pill counts, and what was actually happening in the field. Fascinating. Maybe just before we jump into that whole intrigue, can you tell me what were the rates of HIV infection in the various groups? And was that expected? Was it in line with their power calculations? Or is there some other potential explanation for their result? Uh, yeah, so a good question. So the, the rates of HIV seroconversion were actually higher than expected. So certainly sample size was not an issue. And the other thing that you wonder in HIV prevention trials is that was there a problem with resistance to the medication? And in testing for resistance, that was essentially a non-issue. Okay, so it sounds like you, th- you think we can believe the negative result. So tell me about these adherence rates and why the authors felt that there was a discrepancy. Right. So I think this is the really intriguing uh, part of the trial. And I should uh, start by saying that, you know, one of the important things we talk about in trials is we talk about efficacy versus effectiveness. So efficacy is supposed to what is supposed to be what happens under ideal conditions, for example, within a trial. And effectiveness is what happens in the real world when you run into all the real world problems of trying to convince people to take medication. But this trial is an intriguing scenario where clearly using those terms, efficacy and effectiveness, doesn't really have a lot of meaning when the majority of women who were in the trial, in fact, were not taking the medication as prescribed. Now, the question is why? And uh, the number of reasons that women reported were pretty broad. But, you know, to the credit of these authors, they did a a number of qualitative uh, interviews with women after the trial to try and figure out what happened. And they found that uh, one of the major barriers was the stigma associated with taking these medications. So these medications are well known to be treatment for HIV. And women who were taking them for prophylactic reasons were worried that people would think that they had HIV. They also found a number of uh, reasons that were totally unexpected. There was rumors running throughout the community. Women worried that the medication could cause liver disease. They thought that it could cause infertility, that it would rot their uterus, etc. So a lot of reasons that they didn't expect as well were reported. Interesting. So can you tell us a little bit about the communities in which these trials were conducted? Sure. So these, uh, these, uh, this trial was conducted in three countries, South Africa, Uganda, and Zimbabwe. It was conducted among young women who were sexually active and considered to be high risk for HIV exposure. So this would be very, very typical for the kind of community that you would want to do an HIV prevention trial in. So Fahad, the difference here is a discrepancy between the reported rates based on pill counting and, I guess, patient self-report uh, or participant self-report. I guess, so your interpretation of that is that the research subjects were lying and also manipulating the pill counting to reflect their lying, which I have to say is quite sophisticated. I suppose there's a couple of other, or at least one other way of interpreting it, which is that perhaps there was... Uh, fraud amongst the reporting, the people doing the pill counting, and maybe there were financial incentives for the people doing the pill counting or for the study sites. Can you talk a little bit about whether there were any explanations for why this was inaccurate? So starting with the second point, uh, 
is there a possibility that fraud could explain uh, the results? There's always a possibility of fraud in studies in general. However, there's nothing to suggest that in this particular study that fraud was an issue. The other thing that points, I think, against fraud being a good explanation is that the self-report from the women matches the pill count almost exactly, which suggests that the cause of the discrepancy was coming from the participants. I suppose the, sorry, can I jump in before you answer my first point, which is what, what about the reliability of the blood levels? Is there a possibility that these women had different metabolic phenomena or something that would make those results unreliable? So like any other blood test, there's a range of error in the values that are reported, but certainly nothing that would explain this kind of discrepancy. So getting to your first point about why this could occur, I think there's a lot of good reasons why we could understand why women would want to continue participating in the trial, even if they didn't want to take the medication itself. First of all, the the trial provided free medical care in a clean and well-staffed uh, clinic for all women who participated in the trial, something that was not accessible to them otherwise in their community. It also had a well-stocked pharmacy that could readily provide them with any medication that they needed, including free contraception if they participated in the trial. And finally, the incentive structure for participating uh, could have encouraged women to participate. So the financial remuneration was $15 per visit, which in this community is quite substantial on par with what a day's wages were. Okay, but I still don't fully understand why you think that might have led them to lying. Was there a financial incentive for rates of adherence? So the financial incentive was to remain in the trial. And if women actively decided not to take the medication, they wouldn't, re- they wouldn't have continued in the trial. So that's the incentive. Yeah, that makes sense. The other thing that just occurs to me is, is there any chance that the women were taking the drugs that they were supposed to be taking themselves and giving them to people who needed medication for HIV? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So that was not reported in the trial or the accompanying editorial. However, uh, because this result was so striking, there was coverage also in newspapers. And a New York Times article that we'll link to uh, did some additional interviews with women in the community. And stories were being told of women stockpiling the medication and giving it to their friends who were high risk. For example, one woman reported saving it and giving it to her friend who was a sex worker. Okay, so... How do we interpret all of these results and what is the lesson here for pre-exposure prophylaxis in this population, this high-risk population? The first is that this trial provides a fairly striking example of when just looking at the treatment arm versus the placebo arm doesn't tell you whether the medication itself is effective. So clearly we need to do a lot more work to understand why prophylactic therapies for HIV may or may not be used in real-world settings. And certainly this is not being driven by side effects alone. The second major takeaway is that we probably need to put more focus on objective measures of adherence. So this trial strongly suggests that self-report or even things like pill counting may not be an effective way of measuring adherence, especially when the medication itself is controversial. And I think the third major takeaway is that we may need to look at mechanisms of sustained delivery of prophylactic therapy, for example, things like vaginal rings or injections, and that depending on daily adherence to medication may be just problematic given real-world conditions. This study seems to raise more questions than it answers, uh, but is super interesting and has a lot of really important implications. Absolutely. I thought it was fascinating. Okay, let's move on. I wanted to talk about the SARA trial, which is Exercises to Improve the Function of the Rheumatoid Hand, published by Sarah Lamb and colleagues in The Lancet. 
And this study showed that a tailored hand strengthening and stretching exercise program improved hand function in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. So what did we know prior to this trial level? Yeah, so the background here is that rheumatoid arthritis obviously is quite common, approximately 0.5% of the world's population. It has a substantial impact on quality of life, function, and productivity, and its major effects are on the synovial joints, especially the hands. And as someone who is currently studying for his Royal College exam in internal medicine, the rheumatoid hand has very characteristic deformities, right? And so the current standard of care for patients with rheumatoid arthritis is initiating disease-modifying treatment that reduces disease activity and reduces structural damage. But studies have shown that patients' functional ability can deteriorate in spite of tight control of disease activity. And so this study is really examining the question of whether a tailored exercise program can help preserve some of that or even improve some of that hand function in addition to disease-modifying treatment. So how did they go about testing this question? Yeah, so this was a pragmatic, multi-center, randomized control trial. They obviously could not blind the participants, but they blinded investigators to uh, group allocation. And it included rheumatoid arthritis patients who were officially diagnosed and met the American College of Rheumatology criteria for rheumatoid arthritis. And it included patients who had active pain and dysfunction in their hands. So they randomly assigned 490 patients to either usual care. And usual care included consultation with an occupational therapist or a physiotherapist who discussed joint protection education And if indicated, they offered splinting for the patients. And the intervention group was given usual care as well as an exercise program. And the exercise program was six sessions with the physiotherapist or occupational therapist. And the exercise included seven mobility and four strength and endurance exercises of the hands. And so they assessed patients at four and 12 months after randomization with a standardized questionnaire called the Michigan Hand Outcome Questionnaire. So this seems like a really practical intervention. What did they find? They found, first of all, that it was a practical intervention that most people attended all six sessions. So 75% of patients were able to attend the entire intervention. 45% of participants in the exercise group reported an improvement in their hand ratings, whereas only 21% in the usual care group reported the same which was a number needed to treat of four. So in summary, when they compared good quality standard care that offered advice and splinting, exercise doubles the improvement in function, satisfaction, and productivity of patients. So it sounds like a great study. One of the things that I struggle with in studies that use these standardized questionnaires, which report function, in this case, it's the Michigan Hand Outcome Questionnaire, is interpreting the results. So how much of a difference is this in terms of real-world function? Yeah, so the Michigan Hand Outcome Questionnaire covers a few different domains. So there's domains about function, domains about the activities of daily living, about work, pain. Interestingly, there's a domain about aesthetics and also a domain about hand satisfaction. I mean, I think aesthetics makes sense, right, Amal? It's, it's, uh, this is certainly a debilitating illness, and one of the major ways that it's debilitating is the cosmetic effect on the hand. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting because this is one of the few hand questionnaires that actually includes aesthetics. And I think it might be something that we often neglect, but uh, this, this scoring system did include that. Now, so if you look at the minimum clinically important difference on these different subscales, uh, the one that's probably the most relevant in this study is the activities of daily living scale. And the minimum clinically important difference is a difference of three points. In this study, the intervention group in this arm had an improvement of almost six, whereas the usual care group had an improvement that was just over two. So clearly the exercise group had a clinically important difference, whereas the usual care group did not. Uh, So that sounds pretty compelling overall. What about the aesthetics element? Yeah, since we were talking about it before, unfortunately, there was no uh, statistically significant difference in the aesthetics scale between the two groups. Right. So this intervention seems to be pretty effective. What about its cost effectiveness? Yeah, overall, this intervention was clinically effective. It was effective in patients' self-reported improvements in function, satisfaction, and productivity. So, you know, it seems like it really meaningfully contributed to people's quality of life. In terms of cost effectiveness, so this intervention cost 156 British pounds per patient, which is on average about 100 British pounds more expensive than usual care. And so when they did the cost effectiveness analysis, it was about 9,500 British pounds per quality adjusted life year gained. And so put that in context for us, is that cost effective or not? Yeah, so that that is quite cost effective. Uh, the UK National Institutes for Clinical Excellence or NICE, the ones who does who makes a lot of the recommendations to the NHS about what to cover, um, they typically use a cutoff of about 20,000 British pounds per quality gained uh, to recommend, although they don't have any formal cutoffs, but that's sort of their guideline that they frequently use. So this would be a very effective, cost-effective intervention. Okay, so back in medical school, and I think even during period during my residency training, there was some concern about encouraging activity in people with rheumatoid arthritis, potentially because you could cause more mechanical damage to the joint. Do you think this trial has given us conclusive evidence that we should be recommending activity for our patients, clearly in a supervised manner. And will you apply this to your practice? Yeah, that's right. The concern about mechanical damage to joints affected by inflammatory arthritis did exist. I think increasingly that's felt to be less important. Uh, but this trial certainly helps answer that question and I think puts it to bed for good, at least in the hands. So a couple of points. One is that exercise caused no difference in inflammatory markers or in joint deformity in these patients. So the disease activity did not increase as a result of participation in the exercise group. So I think we can certainly say that this is a safe intervention. uh, And we really should be encouraging patients with rheumatoid arthritis to have a structured exercise program uh, that encourages both mobility and strength and endurance. Thanks, Amal. That's great. So I think this is definitely something that I'm going to look into applying to my own clinical practice. And certainly, you know, new technologies, videos, and web-based technologies could enable this uh, to be disseminated on a fairly wide scale. And uh, I'm pleased that we were able to talk about a rheumatologic problem and not another stroke paper. (laughs) Absolutely. We were on uh, quite a tear there. Okay, perfect. Why don't we move on to our good stuff segment? So Fahad, tell me what caught your attention from the world of medicine this week? 
So the article I'm going to talk about is actually a couple of years old from the New York Times, but it's about a book called Expecting Better by Emily Oster, who's a health economist at the University of Chicago. And uh, this book came to my attention because I work these days with a lot of economists. And one of my colleagues who's pregnant had said, have you read this book? It's where I get all my evidence from, or it's where I get all my evidence about what to do in pregnancy. And that made me curious because health economists are very data driven. And it turns out that this book was written by a health economist because of her frustration with her physician, her, op- her obstetrician, who gave her blanket advice, no more than two cups of coffee a day, or you can only gain this amount of weight in pregnancy. And so she systematically went out and looked at the evidence and came out with pretty different recommendations. And it seems like this book has really hit a nerve with pregnant women. It's one of the uh, most purchased books on pregnancy on Amazon and one of the editor's recommendations for 2014. And I think it's just an interesting example of how the world is shifting in the way that our patients are no longer relying on us for evidence. That's a great recommendation in response to last week's issue of the podcast, which was about obstetrical medicine. It's too bad we didn't know about it then. We could have included it in our good stuff for last week. Absolutely. Would it be too much for me to ask you about one way in which the recommendations in that book differ from yeah, absolutely. So one major controversial one is that uh, Dr. Oster states, so Dr. Oster, the health economist, the author of the book, states that, in fact, the evidence against drinking moderate amounts of alcohol in pregnancy is non-existent. And as you know, we, we take a fairly draconian position against any kind of alcohol consumption in pregnancy in North America, whereas other parts of the world, notably Europe, many pregnant women do, in fact, consume small amounts of alcohol. Uh, thanks for that recommendation. My recommendation is for an interview on Vox.com by Julia Belouz, who was interviewing one of our favorite scientists. I know one, someone you've talked about before on the rounds table, John Ioannidis. I'm a total fanboy. All right. So you probably know then, and I'm sure you do know, that he is the author of the most highly read paper ever in PLOS Medicine, entitled why most published research findings are false. I have it on my clipboard. No, wrong word. I have it on my bulletin board. (laughs) (laughs) So he talked about writing that paper, and he says that, you know, it was the product of actually almost a couple of decades worth of thinking, and it had been something that he sort of had been putting together over time, which I think is really interesting. He also says that he thinks that the title might have contributed to its popularity. Now, let me ask you something, since you're such a fanboy. Did you know that he also writes Greek literature? I did not. In fact, he says that some of his books have been on the list of the most popular books in Greece. So let me read to you the latest title that he has just published. It's called Variations on the Art of the Fugue and a Desperate Richerkar. So, yeah, exactly. My thoughts exactly. Is Richerkar even a word? I'm going to hope, first of all. Is it Greek? (laughs) No, it's, it's, it's Latin, actually, or Italian, I think. It has to do with opera or music. So I'm going to, first of all, go out on a limb and say that perhaps something was lost in translation. And secondly, I'm going to say that if that book ends up being the most widely read book on all of Greek literature, it's got, it's not going to be because of the title. I'm still a fanboy, just a little embarrassed. Okay. Uh, So anyway, it's a great interview and worth checking out for sure. Absolutely. Thanks, Fahad. Pleasure to do this with you. Let's do it again sometime. Good to be with you again, even though you didn't miss me. 